Well, it's always a treat, a privilege to be here with you folks. Uh, many of you know we come here for several weeks uh, each year, and this is uh, our church. This is where we come when, when, uh, when I'm not committed somewhere else, at least, during this time. But anyway, it's always great to be back with folks I'm now getting to know and faces more and more routine. So good to be with you guys. This morning, I get the privilege to uh, choose the subject matter. I don't have to jump into any particular series, and so you would do what I do, and that is you would uh, probably pick a message that, in your opinion, would be more of an uh, a impact message, standalone, that I could possibly imagine. Why not bring the one that would, in my opinion, be the most important on my heart and mind at least? And so the topic, the subject matter will be, is God sovereign? Okay, is God sovereign? We're going to talk about what sovereignty is. You've got an idea what sovereignty is. Is he sovereign? And I'm going to give you the quick answer is yes, and we could close right now. But <laughs> there are going to be some things that you're going to think, hmm, do I really believe God is sovereign? Many who would say right now, oh, of course I believe he's sovereign. But maybe some of us will say, maybe I don't. And that delta, the difference between those two, that gap, makes all the difference in the world in your own heart. So let me, uh, let me introduce it by, uh, by raising three other questions that kind of come as an introduction to this. First question is, what's meant by divine sovereignty? It means absolute authority plus absolute power. Put those together. It's going to be authority and power coming together, all right? Now, when we use the word absolute, referring to those two, absolute, it means without any limitations whatsoever. Keep that in mind. No limitations. Big or small, good or bad events, whatever they may be, they're all included because there are no limitations in other words, if it's not absolute, it's not sovereign. Sovereignty cannot be sovereignty without it being absolute. Okay? So let's just let that be a foundational answer to the first question. Number two question, what difference does it really make whether he is sovereign or not? What, really, what difference does it make to you and me every day? Well, quick story. Wasn't that very long ago, last year or so, forget how long now, but uh, I was working on a book that I had been coming here year after year working on and working on and working on and working on. Here's the deal. I don't use computer. I use a pencil. And, uh, and I write the old-fashioned way. And so uh, I had finished this, and we were now ready back in Atlanta to meet the editor to talk and uh, interact with it and to show that, and we'd work through it and this, that, and the other. And so I, I had my, my bundle of, of pages. Uh, they were probably this high, just an eight and a half by 11 pages of, of uh, some typed already by, from the previous year, but penciled all throughout and all the additions and corrections I had made all in pencil. Everything was just pencil, pencil, pencil everywhere. So I, that night, go into the uh, kitchen area it's dark, and I pick up my tumbler. The only difference, it's just like this. It's just a little bit taller, and uh, it has a little cap on it that can come open, and you can drink like this. I don't ever use that. I just open it up like this, and that's the way I do it. Little did I realize that I had filled it up with water, 
that night before, and the cap was open. And so I had a, just a, a cloth bag, and I put all my pages of my book in the bottom of that little cloth bag, and then I took this, knowing that it's not gonna, water's not going to come out, I just dropped it on top of my pages, and I went to bed. So the next morning, I'm ready to leave the house. Carol's in there with me. And so I pick up my bag, and I'm walking out, and Carol says, Randy, I don't know what you got in there, but that, the water's dripping all out of your bag. And I pull my, my uh, Stanley out, open it up, no water in it. And I realized the top had been opened, all the water had released, and you couldn't read a word on those pages. So here I am going to my meeting, and I, you know, I'm, my first thought, my literally my first thought when I saw it, I went, oh, no, no. And that very minute, and only because, not because I'm a spiritual man, only because I was preaching that coming Sunday this message, and I'd been working on it all week trying to prepare this message, it was all in my mind, God's sovereign, God is sovereign, God is, what does that mean? The things I'm going to be teaching you right now. And all of a sudden, it hit me, oh, wow, God's sovereign. I don't know how this is going to figure out good, but I'm telling you this. Okay, God, there's, there's a reason. That's okay. I'm all right. There's the difference of believing in a sovereign God. Is that a big deal? Well, it was to me. Not life or death. But I have to put this little asterisk to my wife's praise. I'm getting ready to leave, and I said, uh, I guess I'll just go meet the editor and just tell him I'm, you know, can't, can't do it. And Carol says, leave it here. You go explain and so forth. And so I leave it there. And uh, I come home late that afternoon or whenever that was that day. I come home, and there are these few hundred pages spread all across our living and dining area and tables and everywhere. And she had, with a hairdryer, gone over every page until you could faintly see the writing, and it could be recovered. So there's the good news to that, all right? But that wouldn't necessarily happen. That could have happened otherwise, and it's gone forever. And I look at these years I've come here and worked and worked and worked and worked and go, i got to start over now? Is God sovereign over that? If he is sovereign, it means one thing to me. If he's not sovereign... It's like, this is the worst thing that could happen. There's no good in this. This is horrible. Question number three. Here it is. Do you believe God is sovereign? Do you believe he's sovereign? Most of us, as Christians, put limitations on our understanding of God's sovereignty. And we say, of course God's sovereign. He's God. Of course he is. But then you have a a lady come up to me after I preached that sermon that Sunday at our church a year or so ago, and a lady comes up to me, and she says, you're telling me that God is sovereign over everything? And I said, everything. She said, how can you believe? I've just read a book, just finished it, and it's on the Holocaust. Never read anything as horrifying, as tragic, as terrible as what I read there. And you're saying now that our God, our loving, wonderful God, was sovereign over the Holocaust? And I had to answer a question. Now keep in mind, 
the answer you're going to find. And then you're going to understand why I said what I said to her at the end. I'll close and share what I shared with her. Young people, you take this one in. You listen to this subject. This is going to make a difference in your life. This, this is a, it, it truly is a game changer. And you that are what I would call seekers, you're seeking to find, kind of figure out the Christian life. Maybe I'm a Christian, maybe I'm not, I think I am, I, think, I don't know. You're trying to figure this whole thing out of Christianity. You listen well because this is the greatest news you're going to ever hear in your life. Amen. <laughs> it will not be the bad news that, uh-oh, God is sovereign over bad things. It's going to be the good news that God is sovereign over all things. All right? Well, that's just kind of an introduction. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you three stories. I'm going to talk about three stories that come out of the book of Genesis, and uh, it's in chapters 45 through 50. Those are the last five books of the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to take it for granted that everybody here knows everything in the Bible and the Old Testament, and you've got all the names, and it's all together. So I'm going to make this as quick and simple as possible. In fact, a fourth of my notes that I have here are just me telling the story that I'm going to do right now. And this is the first story. It's what I'm going to call the historical story. It's just telling you what's taking place in the book of Genesis so you're not lost saying, I don't know that story, all right? It doesn't matter if you've ever read it, understand it or not. If you have read it, it'll make all the more uh, meaning to you. But the first is going to be a historical story. And that historical story uh, has embedded within it two what I'm going to call redemptive stories. So you know what I mean. Redemptive means salvation. Salvation stories. There are two different stories embedded in the historical story of these chapters of Genesis. You follow that? Okay. Now, the, uh, uh, the second, the, the first redemptive story, uh, or I'm going to say the, the, yeah, the first redemptive story or the second story that I will be telling, which will take only just a couple of minutes, but I'm going to give you what's called the greater redemptive story. And the next one's going to be the lesser redemptive story. Just so you're understanding the framework here, the greater redemptive story, the story of, of salvation is God's redemptive story, his plan for man eternal salvation. So is there a thing called salvation that God offers to mankind? Yes, there is. How, what is that plan and how did that plan come about? That's the story we're going to be dipping into very, very quickly. Just so you see, this is in Genesis. Then we're going to go to the very, very practical end that you'll go. Now, this one applies to me really well. That's the lesser redemptive story. When I say lesser, I don't mean it's not important, but it's the redemptive story of you or me. In this particular case, this is a story of one man named Joseph, and it's his personal redemptive story in the midst of the bigger story, which is told by the very long historic or historical story. Okay? So let's, uh, let me start with the, the historical uh, story. This is the fourth of my notes, or in this one, so you'll know when I finish this about how long the rest of it's going to be, okay? <laughs> but here is a, a, a flyby overview, all right? Assuming you don't know anything about what's going on at this point in Genesis. Prior to Genesis uh, 45... You have a man named Jacob. Now, you may have heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the, they're the patriarchs, the, the beginning peoples of the, the people called Israel, okay? So you've got those three. Well, uh, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Well, now Jacob has many sons, all right? And one of his sons, his last son, is named Joseph. Now, as we come into the story, Joseph's going to be about 17 years of age. So he's a young, you know, teenage kid. Now, he has a bunch of brothers, and they're very jealous of him for several reasons. I'm not going to. it take too long. But they're very, very jealous of him. And they plan to kill Joseph. And they actually start fulfilling their plan and realize, hey, we got another option. We don't have to kill him. What we'll do is we'll sell him because they saw a caravan, a caravan of Ishmaelites, which doesn't matter. what they, They're just foreign people that are coming through, and they sell him and say he can become a slave somewhere. Well, this particular caravan is going into Egypt to sell their slaves. And so they get to Egypt, and so uh, the Ishmaelites uh, sell Joseph once they have purchased him. Now they sell him uh, to, of all people, this fellow named Potiphar. Now Potiphar is an Egyptian officer really under very close to the Pharaoh himself, all right? So now he's kind of being brought into royalty as part of a a plan where he's just got to serve and so forth. Well, Potiphar's wife finds him to be very attractive. And so while alone, she pursued him and made an advance on him. And he, as a righteous man, said, I'm not going to touch this. And so he just ran from it. Well, she had a good plan. She said, I'll just tell my husband that he came after me and throw him into prison. And that's exactly what happened. Well, not only is he in prison, but also Pharaoh had also uh, he had taken one of his workers, two of his workers actually, but one of them was a, was a cupbearer. And the cupbearer was thrown into prison because of something that he had done. And so Pharaoh uh, uh, has this dream, but it's preceded by the cupbearer having a different dream. Well, the cupbearer says, man, what's going on with this dream? And, and there's Joseph. It's in prison with him. And he says, I can interpret that. And he does, correctly, so much so it, it just amazes the cupbearer. Cup and the cupbearer now is getting released from his prison and it's going to go back to his original job. And as he's going back to his original job, Joseph just says, hey, by the way, remember what I did for you? Can you remember and tell Pharaoh I'm a good guy and I'd like to get out of here? <laughs> now, don't think for a minute that his prison was an easy, not short, no, it was long years. It was hard. It was horrific. The, the, I won't even go into them. But here, this is going on, and he said, oh, I hope the cupbearer, well, the cupbearer forgets all about it. Until Pharaoh has, he has a dream, and he's all burdened about how to get, figure out this dream, and the cupbearer says, well, you know what? There's a guy in prison. His name's Joseph. You go to him. He can probably answer the thing. He said, okay, get him out. So he brings him out, and sure enough, by the power of God, he interprets the dream. It has to do with there's this big famine coming and so forth. And, and uh, he says, oh, my goodness, you're amazing. And he lets, lets him out to be, I mean, literally at the, at the height of all workers under Pharaoh. He was kind of the top guy. And it was amazing what had happened. He goes from prison to being one of the, the great leaders over, uh, over Egypt. Now, over and over again, had I read all the text through Genesis... That was a lot of chapters, by the way. But if I'd have read all of that, you would have heard these words over and over. The Lord was with him. Then you see this happening. Well, the Lord was with him. Well, this happened. The Lord was with him. Is he a sovereign God? We're going to find out. But this Lord was with him. So all the nations we read came to him, came into to, uh, Egypt because they were needing food. 
And the, one of the genius things that, that, uh, that uh, uh, Joseph knew because of uh, Pharaoh, you know, uh, because of God just revealing it to him, said, hey, here's a plan. If we were to, we, there's this, this big famine's coming in about seven years. You know, if we just took seven years and kept stockpiling and stockpiling and stockpiling, nobody else will do that. And then when the famine comes for seven years, then we'll have everybody come to us and they'll be, our, they'll be eaten out of our hands, literally. Well, that's what happened. Now we come to Joseph is there over all of this taking place, all these people coming to get their grain and purchase and so forth and so on. And who shows up but his brothers sent by their daddy to come get them some food. And this is where we see him standing before Joseph, unaware. They haven't seen him in years. Now, that seems hard for, oh, surely he'd write, no. Nah. And who knows how he was dressed and disguised, and who would ever dream this would be him. So they don't recognize him. And this is what we read in verses 4 through 8 of Genesis 45. It says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. They came closer, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Hmm, think God is sovereign? The Bible says he is right there. Then it says, for the famine has been in, these, in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. There's dipping in already into that that bigger story right there, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Does the Bible say God is sovereign? Well, it sure seems to, doesn't it? Now we turn to, to Genesis 46 through 50. Jacob and his family now move. I'll tell all the story why. They end up moving into Egypt. Uh, big brother's there, and, you know, this is a great place to take care of us, so they're invited in. Well, now, eventually, Jacob dies. So daddy is dead now. And the brothers would get really afraid. They said, now he's going to retaliate. He's been good to us because daddy's been around, but now he's gone. They're gonna, he's going to hit us hard. And now we come to Genesis 50, the last chapter. 18 through 21 reads this. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold. We're your servants. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Those many people alive, by the way, are the Israelites that are the people of God that will give birth to the church. Keep that in mind. So therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. All right, so let's look at that. So there's a quarter of my notes, okay? So do the, do the math. You know when it's going to happen, okay? Number two, this would be the greater redemptive story. Very brief here. Simply this. It's the redemption story of Israel, now the church, as I just mentioned. Now keep in mind, just to make this very, very quick, if there are no Israelites in Egypt, there would be none without Joseph, right? There would be no bondage. There would never be the story of bondage in Egypt, which is coming later. All the bondage of the, if you know that story with, you know, how the Pharaoh and all, 
all the story. I won't go into that, but there would be no exodus without him having come here. There would be no exodus, which is the great where the ten plagues, if you're familiar with all that, and the exodus that takes place. And the people of God are protected by God as they leave and exit out of Egypt. Which means that without that, there would be no Passover. There would be no Passover lamb. Well, what was the Passover lamb? It was a picture to say, hey, there's a lamb coming. Not just a physical lamb. There's a lamb called the Lamb of God, Jesus, and he's coming. And all of this is to portray, God is working all this story to point us to this lamb, which is going to be the lamb of God, Messiah, we've been thinking about and talking about. This is Messiah that's being referred to. And if there had been no lamb, there would not be a promised land. Do you get the picture? There's a story being woven here, and it's the greater redemptive story, that none of us would be children of God, were it not for this story. Had what happened to, to this one man, Joseph, if this had not happened to him, the way everything plays out, there would be no church today. Now, there could be another plan, but there had to be a plan, and this was the plan God chose. Now we come to the third, the lesser redemptive story. This is actually Joseph's story. Now, keep in mind, we've got one just like Joseph. Everybody has their own story. We need to be thinking about that story. But here is Joseph's story. And as we talk about it, there are three basic important insights about the sovereignty of God. Here it is. Number one, God is sovereign. Therefore, no relationship of life circumstances in the present in, uh, is the result of chance. They are all God-authored. I'm going to read that one more time. God is sovereign, therefore no relationship or life circumstance is the result of chance. They are all God-authored. Look at Joseph's relationship and his life circumstances. How about his brothers? Hmm, that didn't turn out too good, did it? They were pretty bad. How about the Ishmaelites? They were slave purchasers, slave sellers. Terrible, have to go through that. Potiphar's wife, where he knows I did nothing wrong and I'm thrown into prison for years. God, don't you know that I was honoring you by what I did? And now I'm in prison by your hand? If, if you're causing all things, if you're part of my story, you're caught. How can that be, God? How about the cupbearer? I told the cupbearer, and what did he do? He just totally forgot me. How many more years? How much time was it? We don't know. But because that cupbearer was there, look what happens to Joseph. You've got Pharaoh, the whole story with what happened with Pharaoh. Now, you look at all of those circumstances, all of those relationships, and you can't help but see the sovereignty of God. I mean, just the, God's hand of sovereignty, sovereign hand is over everything, one after the next, after the next, after the next. So now, with all that in mind, listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's one of the most outstanding writings ever to help people, Christians understand the Bible. And what's for that, the third chapter, this is what we read. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordained some things that come to pass. 
No, not at all. All things whatsoever comes to pass. Now, some of y'all have heard of R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest theologians of his day. He is deceased now, but not that many years ago he passed away. And an uh, incredible, incredible theologian. This is what he writes about this subject matter. He says, to say that God foreordains all that comes to pass is simply to say that God is sovereign over his entire creation. Now, if something could come to pass apart from his sovereign permission, then that which came to pass would frustrate his sovereignty. If God refused to permit something to happen, and it happened anyway, then whatever happened caused it to happen would have more authority and power than God himself. If there is any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, then God is simply not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. If we reject divine sovereignty, then we must embrace atheism. Hmm. Now, I realize there's, I've experienced with my kids, some of you that have children, you have two that are little, and they come and say, oh, I've got to have those tennis shoes. If I don't have those tennis shoes, I'm just, uh, I've got to. No, you can't have the tennis shoes. They're way too expensive. We don't need them right now. Oh, well, if I don't get those, then this is going to happen. If that didn't happen, then this is going to happen. 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 And, and the world will come to an end. <laughs> no, it won't. Well, we could read that and say, I bet that's one. No. Just do it piece by piece. If you had time to spend, you'd go, that's really true. It either he is sovereign or he is not. How about a second of three kind of applicable thoughts about your and my story as well as Joseph? God authored relationships and life circumstances can be undesirable and painful ones which may or may not be the result of one's bad choices or sinful behavior. I could walk right through, just for time, I've got it here in my notes, I'm not going to do it for time, but I could go and show you one after the other, with his brother's bad choices, with the Potiphar's wife, good choices. It doesn't matter, good or bad choices, big or small, it doesn't matter. We should never assume, oh, if it's a small issue, then it's under God's, it's a good issue, it's a, no. They, therefore, would all be under God's sovereignty. Number three, for the believer, undesirable and painful relationships and life circumstances always work together for good and provide opportunities to honor God. They don't just work out for good. They're opportunities to honor God when they don't go good. Look at Israel. And the church's bigger story. The worst of circumstances end up with the formation of Israel and now the church. Look at Joseph's lesser story. Look at his story. We shouldn't be surprised that everything's under God's sovereign hand. In fact, Romans 8, 28. Many of you know that verse. But if you don't, here's how it goes. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now the third and final one. We're ready to wrap her up now. What about your and my story? Carol and I were talking the other day about some of our dearest friends that are going through cancers and all kind of horrible situations, bad, bad, bad problems. And we are talking about our life and how God has chosen to do this, that, and the other. And I said, you know, 
I look back at my hardest time of all was the day I was in college, just started college, young college student. And my father and I, as close as any father and son, I think could be. I don't ever remember having an argument. I don't ever remember having a fu- I never, I mean, it was just hugs and I love you and everything. And then I'm away. I'm out of the state. And I get a phone call from my mother. And it says, I don't know how to explain this, but your father has left. And he's left a note. And he says, the note says he'll never see you or your brother. And that if you ever have children, get married and have children, kiss my grandchildren for me. Literally, that's what it said. It was just a note. And he was gone. Disappeared. Well, I don't know how, you, how that would impact you, but to me, that was just horrific. It was horrific. I'm sure there are consequences that I hadn't even thought about today. But I'll tell you this. I've thought about these consequences. I've thought about the good that's come out of that. And to me, it is amazing. My mother's salvation, I'm convinced, came out of that right there. I'm convinced. Uh, My choice of a mate, uh, I mean, I could not have had. And I don't say it because she's here. but I'm glad she is. I couldn't ask for a better mate. I I could not have asked for a better mate. But you don't think that I was slow go and cautious and careful and no, yeah, not not her because no, I want to, I went on a pursuit to figure out what love is. If my dad could be married 25 years and have a wonderful relationship for years with my mom and then all of a sudden decide I'm gone because I don't, love, I don't love my wife anymore. She's not the one I really wish I'd gotten. Well, how do I know that's not going to happen to me? And I went on the search to figure out the answer to that question, so much so that I started giving a talk. And as a Christian leader now, I gave talks about the younger people. How did, I've been to campus after campus, after multiple fraternities and sororities and this, so forth in university to, to just tell the kids, hey, don't just go about it the way most people go about it. How many people have been blessed by that? It's a book now that's gone out all over the, who knows where. And I go, well, well, that certainly was good. And how many people have I counseled as a pastor when they say, you don't understand, I've, I've been deserted, I've been deserted. And I have to say, I, I, I can't understand your situation, I know. But I can understand somewhat because I was deserted by my father. What? Tell me. I tell him the story, and it's like, I'm all ears. Tell me what you have to say, Randy. Why? They say, you understand. You know what desertion is, right? So keep this in mind. I'm going to read it one more time. For believers, undesirable and painful circumstances in life, uh, relationships and life circumstances always work together for good, and provide opportunities to honor God. Here's my conclusion. Two primary struggles I want to mention. These are going to be your and my hardest struggles. This is going to be the two things, if anything, is going to say, I can't believe God is sovereign. Like this lady that came to me about the Holocaust. The first is this. To believe God is sovereign over the painful suffering of mankind and especially of his people. There's our first struggle. You're going to tell me that a loving, gracious, good God 
is letting the hell that's taking place in these people's lives take place. And it's part of his plan, which means what God would be sovereign. This is his plan. This is the pain they're going to suffer. This is how life's going to be. It's horrific. Well, that's too big of a topic to, to jump into in, its, you know, in, the, in the whole story. It can't, can't do that. But I'm going to just narrow it down to just a little statement that's going to help you understand it. Statement that comes from Johnny Erickson Tata. You know who she is. Many of you do just by your, your uh, nodding. Uh, if you don't know, she's a, a, a quadriplegian. I think she was 17, 18 years of age, was in a terrible accident, and left her without use of her limbs. You're talking about a woman who's lived through hell day after day after day after day, not just because she's a paraplegian, but the pain, the suffering. Just read her books and you'll see. Horrible. But for some reason, she comes out of the other end and she's saying, now as a, as a lady laying in bed in pain and suffering, she says, I wouldn't have swapped this for anything in the world. I've seen the hand of God and his goodness to me. And here's her statement in her book. If you want to read a great book on this, When God Weeps, that's her book on suffering. She and Steve Estes, which, by the way, PCA pastor, so comes right out of our roots. If you're part of this church, you know what I'm talking about. Here's a statement. Served me well for years. Hope it'll serve you. God ordains what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, I'd love to spend time, and I could give a whole message on what are the three things, and there are many things, but the three that are the standouts. What are the three things that God loves so much? But when you see them, you go, wow, I can see why God would let soft suffering take place. He loves that so much. Oh. But it's the second struggle that's our hardest. See if you agree. I struggle to believe that God is sovereign over man's eternal destiny, choosing some and not others. So you want to take that out of the, he's sovereign over everything but that? Can't do that. It appears to take away free will, doesn't it? Well, I'll assure you this. You get a good theologian, I, even I could do this, and I could show you it is not anti-free will. If you think it is, it's either one or the other, you're wrong. Just trust me, you've got to go study that further. So the two don't contradict each other. But Christians reject it, not because they don't see it in the Bible, but because it makes no sense to them. I just, I can't believe that. It just doesn't make sense. So my pastor growing up didn't believe, the, didn't believe in the gospel as we do. But my parents, they were... We're just nominal, you know, people that went to church, not real Christians. And so I read the Bible because I just become a Christian. And I'm reading the Bible, and I come to Romans chapter 9, and I say, whoa, I don't know if you know what Romans 9 is, but, you know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, you know, before any good or evil was done, his choice. <laughs> okay, I read that, and I went, hmm, this doesn't look good to me. I don't like this. So I went to my parents and said, what does the Bible mean here? I've never seen my parents read the Bible. And they look at me and they go, whoops. That's why we pay a preacher. Or we give money every Sunday to, 
preacher. So they set up an appointment for me. So I go to the appointment, I sit down with this preacher, and I say, can you help me understand? This is one of the most dignified, most noted in the whole state is this number two biggest church of, uh, of the denomination, liberal denomination, but number two in the whole state. And I go and I say, can you explain this Romans 9 stuff? He looks at me and he says, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he says, no, I can't explain it. But I know this. It can't mean what it says. Listen more. I ripped that chapter out of my Bible years ago. That did not serve me well. I said, uh-uh, I'm not buying that. So I started in my search. I wanted to figure this out. And I can remember literally getting emotional saying, God, I don't know that I can love you if you're letting people perish. And it's part, I can't be, it can't be, it can't be. So check this illustration out. So I'm at a, uh, it's, not, it's, a, it's a true story. I'm at a conference and this tremendous theologian of reputation knew the scriptures like nobody's business. And he's speaking and he starts speaking on something and he mentions about this stuff called predestination and what God has predestined people. Well, this was now raw on me. So I go up to him and I said, Dr. So-and-so, I was over. I said, I got to tell you, I can't believe what you just said. I can't believe that God is sovereign over man's eternal destiny. That just can't be. He says, and why not? And I said, because it makes no sense whatsoever. Ha. Ah. So he turns to a whiteboard, which was a blackboard then. <laughs> and I'm going to pretend this is the blackboard, okay? And he took some chalk, and he said, let's let this right here, this big board here, represent the knowledge of God, okay? Now, Randy, is the knowledge of God finite or infinite? Well, I knew the answer to that question. I said, well, God's knowledge is infinite. All right, Randy, is that board finite or infinite? I said, it's finite. So he says, so, so for me to let this board represent the knowledge of God is an, I mean, an incredible understatement. Would you agree? I said, yeah, I agree. Then he said, okay, and he takes a, a piece of chalk, and he, by the way, he says, and this board, therefore, should go forever and ever and ever and ever in all four directions if it's infinite, right? Yeah. So he draws a circle, and so I'll put that circle there. He puts this big circle on that board, and he says, let's say that, that circle represents the knowledge of all mankind collectively throughout all time. That's all knowledge man has ever had put into one space. So he says, would that be finite or infinite? I said, finite. He said, now that board's, uh, it'd, be, it'd be finite. He said, well, the board's infinite, so you shouldn't even see that circle. If this thing goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and this is the knowledge of God, knowledge of all mankind. I said, Yes, sir. So then he draws another circle in, inside that one. He says, this circle, this represents the knowledge of the single most brilliant human being that has ever, ever, ever lived. Okay? All into one, this one person. He said, so now that, is there any person in the world that has maybe a tenth of all knowledge? No. So this is an understatement, right, Randy? I said, yeah, that's right. And then he took that chalk and he hit a little spot right in the middle of that dot. That, he says, that dot, that dot represents your knowledge, Randy. <laughs> and he did assure me this was his biggest understatement, by the way. And he, <laughs> but he says, you shouldn't see that dot because you're not even close to that, you know. 
And then he did this. He took an eraser, and he erased everything but the dot. And I don't know if you can see the dot in the back, but the dot's still there. So he says, so Randy, that's your knowledge. And this board, which is way too big, and the board, which is, I mean, infinitely too small. It would go forever and ever and ever and ever. And then he said this. He started putting X's around. He says, little X, little X, little X, little X. Everything, everything is something that God has, has declared. And he says, do you think it's possible that there is an X out there called God's divine sovereignty over man's destiny that just won't fit on your little dot. It will never fit. And I'd give you this advice, Randy. As you grow up, you believe the Bible, then go see what the Bible says. And don't make the highest priority is it understandable to you. Does it clearly teach it in the Word of God? And Randy, here's my prophecy. You'll be blessed for a lifetime if you submit to his will instead of your best judgment. Young people, that would be my advice to you. Don't ever think, I just can't be. I know God wants me to have fun, therefore I can do anything God says not to do. That's not true. You know the Bible doesn't say that. So this lady comes up to me. And she says, so what about the Holocaust? And I said, just ask, let me ask you this. If the Holocaust is not part of God's sovereignty, where is that line that you draw that says, here it is, everything over here it is, over, you can't do that, can you? And she says, no. I said, you either got to say he's not sovereign, back to what Sproul said, either he's not sovereign at all or he's sovereign over everything. And if he's sovereign over everything, then you can pick up your water bottle and say, oh, this doesn't feel good to me at all. But you know what? There's a purpose. And he's going to use it in my life. He's going to use it in some way. I don't know how. I may never see it. But it sure is a great opportunity to glorify God and say, I can rejoice in all things. And people will look at that and say, can you? How? So what happened to me when I learned this truth about God's sovereignty? It caused me now to drop on my knees and to say, Oh God, why would you save me? I don't have to understand, but I know it's your love. And I don't understand why you didn't show it to everybody in the same way. But I'm not going to be proud over that because I know it's not me. What does that do for me? How does it change me? Oh, my gosh. So young people, yeah, you go without faith, and you go without Jesus, and you live your life the way you want to live life, and you think you're winning? No. No. Remember, you're just a dot. You go to the bigger X's, what God has said, and you just submit and see if you're not going to be blessed. And young people, I can tell you this. I can't look back at anything where I said, I obeyed God, and it wrecked my life. I wish I'd not done it. Never could I say that. So it's worth remembering. Our God is sovereign. Go to the cross, see Jesus, see what he did for you. Then you'll fall to your knees if you truly see what he did. Because that's what he uses to open our hearts to him. All right? Let's pray together. Father in heaven.
We thank you that you have so graciously uh, done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that you gave us a Savior in Christ, and in your own sovereign will, you chose to do things that we could never have understood, and you're still doing them. May we trust you. May we have delight when we, when we spill our water on our, our pages, whatever that is for us. And we pray, Father, that we would stop quickly and say, oh, that's right, you're sovereign. So God, would you now take our hearts in a bigger way than you ever have. Let us live for you. You're worthy of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.